Welcome to Cuffs and Cakes presents Inside the Artist Studio. The interview you're about to hear was originally recorded July 23rd, 2017. To find out more about Cups and Cakes, visit them at cupsandcakespod.com. That's cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. What you're about to hear may contain filthy language and adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Greensboro, and you're joining me on Inside the Artist Studio. Goldtop is an Avant folk rock duo from Edmonton consisting of Alice Coase and Everett Leroy. They came together professionally when Leroy produced Coase's 2012 record entitled You Missed It All. After doing some shows together to support that record, they found a chemistry worth exploring, and Goldtop was born. Their debut album, You Possess Me, released in August, is a folk rock record at its core, but has flourishes of dream pop, country, crunchy rock, and even slow core. Joining me today on Inside the Artist Studio is Alison Everett from Goldtop, also the man who inspired them to form, Marvin Etzioni. There's two Marvins here. Well, welcome to Cups and Cakes. Why don't we start with uh, your names and what you play in the band? Should I go first? Sure. I'm the lady. I'm Alice Koss, and uh, I play guitar and keyboards in Goldtop. And my name is Everett Leroy, and I play uh, a few different things, uh, mostly guitar, and I also sing. My name is Everett Leroy, and I play guitar, mostly sing. No, my my name is Marvin Etzioni, a.k.a. the other Marvin today. And um, I sing and play mandolin and uh, guitar, and I'm not in Goldtop. Well, why don't you tell us the story of Goldtop? How did you two come together, and what was it like to create this project? I guess if we're to go back to the beginning, uh, it would begin with Everett having taught me guitar lessons. So uh, I always played piano. I decided I want to learn, wanted to learn guitar. Um, asked my friend at the time, Mark Davis, who's now my husband, if there was anyone he would recommend, and he said Everett Leroy. So I started taking lessons from Everett, and we ended up, you know, whatever, I wrote a bunch of songs, we recorded my solo album, then we, I went to promote that solo album, started playing shows together as a duo, and then it all just kind of evolved from there. That's the short version. Well, now, we, we may mention that you guys are a, a duo, but uh, we have another man in the booth with us, mm. another Marvin. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about this strange gentleman in the corner? Mm. Well, after I had released my solo album, I got this very strange email from this very strange man. Uh, he'd heard my album, I think, online, and just sort of introduced himself. And sort of just like, we should do something together, you know? And uh, I, I initially, like, I just found it all very confounding because he was telling me about this solo album that he had just released and was promoting 
where, uh, you know, he recorded duets with Lucinda Williams and Richard Thompson and Steve Earle and John Doe and all these heroes. And I was like, what? Like, who? And um, he also mentioned that, or maybe I had to Google it. Um, I don't know if you told me you'd been in Lone Justice or if I just had to look it up because I was just like, who is this guy? And is this a scam? <laughs> is this some elaborate scam? And when is he going to ask for my credit card number? Uh, but I asked my husband, Mark, and he was like, oh, I know Lone Justice. Like, uh, sounds like the real deal. But you should you should check with Lori, our friend Lori Matheson from Calgary, who just knows about everything there is to know about music. So I forwarded the email to Lori and I was like do you do you know this guy is this real and uh Lori was like if you do not respond to Marvin I will never speak to you again so I did respond to Marvin and we just started corresponding and ended up playing shows together in eastern Canada we had sort of this mini tour so Marvin was promoting Marvin Country his uh, last solo release and uh, I was promoting my newly released solo album and so uh, uh, I took Everett with me I'd been playing with a band at the time but uh, couldn't afford to take the whole band on the road so Everett and I traveled together as a duo and um, and then that's kind of that was the sort of that was the starting point because it was that trip where we were like playing as a duo was fun you know that went well Um, but it was also just uh, actually a, a pretty magical time you know like meeting Marvin and playing these shows with him and sort of collaborating on stage, you know, uh, performing together. Um, yeah, so that kind of set the, that set the stage for what happened next. Were there any things that you pulled from the experience with Marvin that you wanted to emulate as Goldtop? Uh, Marvin uh, and Alice were singing a duet on that tour of a song from Marvin's album, You Possess Me. And uh, Marvin had asked, uh, he said, well, Ev, why don't you come up onto the stage and uh, play some guitar? And uh, that was fun. And uh, so when we got back from the tour, I should also mention that Alice plays a uh, gold top Hagstrom electric guitar, and she's blonde. And so uh, Marvin started calling her gold top uh, at that point. Gold top, come to the stage. And as I recall, he was calling me Dr. Ev. Dr. Ev, come onto the stage. Ladies and gentlemen, Everett's got a guitar tone that's like an oven. <laughs> it was beautiful. We were getting along great. And so when we, uh, after this experience we had with Marvin, we got back to Edmonton and uh, I was saying to Alice, I was like, why don't we cover You Possess Me? It's a great song. We know it. Your vo- it's great for your voice. Uh, and it was also around that time that we just sort of discovered that this notion of taking a drum machine and a duo uh, on the road um, was really fun. It was really spontaneous. Uh, and previous to that, we had been touring and uh, just doing shows with a full band that we had created for Alice's uh, record. Uh, so we had this new format, this kind of duo with drum machine thing going uh, that was really working for us. Uh, and we thought maybe we should do a duo, just, you know, take this farther. You know, this is really working. Why don't we, we do this? And, uh, and thinking of a name, Gold Top seemed perfect. So anyway, uh, in those ways, uh, Marvin kind of helped to form uh, the group. You know, it was sort of... Uh, his remark about Goldtop and playing a song of his. So it's all kind of, all sort of mixed together, you know, these experiences that kind of, that's sort of where the genesis of the band, uh, you know, occurred, I guess. So. Well, Marvin, I've got a question for you. Hello. 
What was it about these two that uh, piqued your interests? There are certain people when they're in a room together or when they're on stage together, they, and they seem that they just belong together. And so, even though that she, when Alice was performing, it was a quote solo show. Whenever I saw the two of them on stage, I go, "This is a two-person band." They just had a, a, a vibe of a of a band that was no longer just. Oh, she's a solo artist and this guitar player. It's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's him or it's someone else. It's like, he seemed indispensable. He, it seemed like it was the two of them against the world. And that, to me, is what a band is. And they didn't need any more people. <laughs> you could add cellos. You could add anything you wanted to it. So that was when we started talking just about this idea. Well, maybe Goldtop is just Alice and Everett, this two-person, two-headed monster. And then... When they started doing You Possess Me without me and they just did it on their own, it was like, oh, okay, they really owned it. And that, to me, was almost like the uh, catalyst of the, the, the gold top sound when, when I heard that. I was like, okay, this is really exciting now. Not because I wrote the song, because I, I felt like I was just kind of part of this whole experience, you know. So it, it was great. It was magical, accidental, and... Um, everything it was supposed to be, I think. Well, you both had solo kind of projects going on before you joined up. Has the joining together pushed your creative process in any different directions? For me, for sure. I think when I had been writing songs like as a, as a solo artist or whatever, uh, particularly like on the piano, which is my primary instrument, uh, I sort of felt like I had to take up all the space, you know, instrumentally. And um, when Everett and I started playing together, uh, I stopped playing my full 88 key electric, you know, whatever, it's a Korg SV1. And I started playing this Elka piano, which is uh, this like Italian make from the 60s. And it changed everything for me, like how my approach to just uh, to playing keys really and, and just sort of looking for uh, you know, sort of like little parts that would fit into the bigger picture rather than just like making, you know, th than it being like the whole thing, you know, and um, it was just really liberating, you know, like I, th I, I often think that using another instrument or taking up another instrument can be just so creatively liberating, right, because you don't fall back to the same sort of habits that you have always had or that you've developed you know you you just try new stuff and even if it's really simple it can be really exciting right and so when we started experimenting with vintage keyboards and synthesizers and drum machines you know all of that you know along with with Everett's uh electric guitar which really you know to me uh he's he's really got his 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 tone happening like the Everett tone you know I feel like I could pick it out of anywhere but um it was just like this is a new thing you know and um I love the I love the I love the duo element you know like in terms of harmonies and stuff like that and certainly like the You Possess Me uh song was um a, a, a great way for us to kind of start thinking about performing songs like, you know, harmonies all the way through, you know, in the sort of like Everly style. So those kinds of things, it, yeah, like it totally made, it, it took a totally different direction from, from like the stuff I'd been doing solo before. 
uh, I think it was Orson Welles who said, you know, like the, the worst thing for an artist is having no limitations or no walls. Like you need things to bounce up against with which to create within. So in a sense, having like a duo format where we were going to tour without a drummer and without a bass player and so on gave us sort of a, a context to see what can we do within this. So that sort of led us to different things. Um, and also, I think, uh, as Alice uh, pointed out, our previous projects, especially in my case, because I've been playing music for, for a lot of years, um, I came from a culture that... Uh, uh, drum machines, for example, were used as writing tools, uh, but they were not used for live performance. Uh, uh, demos were for writing songs, like stuff you recorded at home wasn't real records, those were demos. You know, if you wanted to make a record, you went into a recording studio. Um, and sort of bouncing up against those, uh, I mean, always considering real drums, for example, to be superior and more interesting than a drum machine. Uh, but after you've been doing that for like 25 years, you know, it's just, in a way, it's kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm, it's not that I'm bored of real drums or whatever, but it was interesting to, to just to not do that. Uh, and also to specifically get interested in a particular type of sound, like for Goldtop, I think we sort of discovered our sound with a song we recorded called The Flood, uh, because it, uh, it became sort of an archetype for our sound. Like, first of all, we were working with an analog drum machine. So in other words, the drum machine does not have any samples of real drums. It's all sounds that were concocted to imitate real drums. And they don't sound like real drums at all. Uh, but they're rich. They're their own thing, you know. Uh, so we were using that. And then also uh, Alice started to uh, use a microcorg uh, bass sound. Then the song over top of that sort of gave us a context. She had this new uh, keyboard, this Elka, this Italian-made uh, uh, sort of pre-synthesizer kind of piano-like thing. And she started doing sort of arpeggiated parts that were almost reminiscent of new wave stuff from the 80s, you know. Uh, of course, I was there in the 80s. She was like just a kid, you know, so we were coming at it from very different points of view. So within that, you know, so with those different things, wanting to rebel against the stuff I'd done in the past, like just playing in bands with bass, drum, and guitar, and, you know, having these new sets of limitations, you know, that, that definitely pushed us in, into new things for us personally, you know. Certainly not new things maybe uh, in the development of music in general, but for us, very new and, um, you know, very exciting. So, Well, fantastic. That brings us to the end of part one of the, the interview process. Now we're going to move on to part two. This is the serious stuff. And what's, it's what we ask to get to know you. This is our rapid fire segment. So I'll start it off. What was the first album that sparked your love of music? First album I bought was the Beatles 1967 to 1970. I got a gift certificate for Christmas. Well, for me, it wasn't a record. It was a mixtape that my mom made of Beach Boys songs. And I think I just listened to that pretty much for my entire childhood. <laughs> uh, it could be uh, one of a few albums, High Tide Green Grass. The Rolling Stones. What's your current musical obsession? Beyonce Lemonade? I can't explain it, but I am in love with that album right now. Well, I was just given a gift by Alice, uh, Bill Fay's album, uh, Life is People, mm -hmm. and I haven't had the opportunity to be obsessed with it yet, but uh, from what I've heard, I, I cannot wait to get home and listen to it. <laughs> to get obsessed with it. Yeah, to get obsessed with it. <laughs> yeah. 
What's the best movie you've seen recently? Best new movie I've seen uh, in the theater was uh, Baby Driver, which I think uh, it was in Los Angeles at the uh, Cinerama Dome, and I'd heard about the film, and, and the night that I could go happened to be the night the director was going to do a Q&A after the film. So I got tickets online, got the last two tickets in the last row. It was sold out and uh, really good. And what's interesting about the film is that the director's point of view was that he had a concept for a song and then he would create a scene in the movie. And so the, the, the music uh, was really, it's like the, the film was, part, it, it went hand in hand with the songs. And so the songs were never edited. You'd hear the complete songs. So like the second scene, the second song in the movie was the original version of, version of uh, Harlem Shuffle as an example. So it was very identifiable. It lasted the entire song. And this went out through the, throughout the whole movie. And at the same time, you could really get a sense that it didn't, uh, deteriorate your interest in the film or the storyline or the characters um, but I think that uh, what he created was something it's like I watched that film I felt like I've been waiting like my for decades to see something that was so music driven rather a lot of times I'll see a movie and let's just play a snippet of a song or it fades out or it gets cut and this had the utmost respect for the song so the soundtrack is just as important as the movie very unique and it's probably going to happen more and more i think as time goes on i know why i can't pick out a movie and that's because i actually can't remember the last movie i've seen because i'm the mother of a two-year-old and i have about 30 minutes like when I start watching something once he's gone to bed I've got about 30 minutes before I just like totally conk out so I'm like I can only watch shows now I can't watch movies anymore how many pets do you have and what are their names I have one pet a chihuahua named Ivan uh, we have an English cocker spaniel named Isabel no pets thank you what's the strangest job you've ever had I worked at McDonald's and that was pretty weird you know I was, I think I was 14 or 15, but I loved it. I loved working at McDonald's. I could elaborate, but I don't think anybody's really gonna care. I drove a cab for about three months, uh, but that was a very bizarre job. Um, I don't think there's a short answer to, to, but yes, that would be it probably. Beatles or the Stones? Beatles. Ooh. That's tough because they're like the yin and yang, right? So uh, it's kind of hard to have one without the other. I don't think I could answer that. I, I need them both. Without getting into it too long, but what's unique about the Beatles is that I'd have to say Beatles because it's the only band in existence ever as a four-piece band. I'm not talking about a two-piece band. As a four-piece band that they never changed any of the members it was always what once they had set the John Paul Joyner, George and Ringo, that was the Beatles. And you can't say that for the Stones. After Brian Jones died, they've had two or three guitar players. They actually got another bass player after Bill Wyman. And I'm a huge Stones fanatic. And uh, I got to record once with Ronnie Wood and perform once with Keith Richards. I. And, and, you know, anybody can say, no one loves the Stones more than me, so I'd love to be able to say that. But when I think of the band, it was indestructible. 
<laughs> there's no there've never been and it's and I think it's one of the reasons that they remain so iconic because you couldn't it wasn't like oh well when they did Abbey Road you know they got Eric Clapton replace Harrison it wasn't like that they could have you know but they were uh, indispensable in terms of that kind of imagery and power there was never been a band that um, th that had that there there may be comparisons with other bands but no one no one had that the Stones didn't have that as great as they were and are that's all exactly what I was gonna say <laughs> What was your first car? A Mercury Topaz, and it had many colors because I kept hitting things and having to replace parts. So I like, it was blue, it was like a white bumper, and green door. Uh, I can't remember what else, but it was, it was pretty rocking. I had a red 1971 Volvo 144E. <laughs> if it hadn't have died, I think I would have just kept on driving it. I probably would still be driving it. I remember, um, you know, getting a uh, Toyota Tercel, the one with like had a hatchback and looked like just someone took a hatchet and cut it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I still had that car because fantastic car, four wheel drive. And uh, I remember driving it uh, from LA to Portland and uh, it got stuck in the mud. My friend Dwayne Jarvis, guitar player, we were on our way to play with Bo Diddley in Portland and put it in four-wheel drive, and then it's like, yeah, I never had a car like that since. <laughs> that was great. Favorite Canadian city to play? I'm going to say Wakefield. I don't, it's not I a city. Uh, it's a little town near Ottawa. Charming as hell. And, um, you know, that's presuming that hell is charming, but... Uh, the people in Wakefield are just changed my life. People that, well, I have to give a shout out now to Cafe 1870 in Wakefield. But that would definitely be my favorite place to play. I think it's just like, whenever when, when I arrive there, I feel like I'm entering a different dimension of love. I don't know if I could say my it would be my favorite place, but one of the places that is memorable for me as far as a Canadian uh, city is actually North Bay, Ontario, which no one would ever guess, but they had this venue uh, called Wilders that might still be there, uh, and it was in an old hotel. What they did was is the entire second floor of the hotel was the band area. You played at the venue, which was in the first floor, and then they would, you, each band member would have their own room, uh, and they would roll out the red carpet. They would cook every single night. We would do laundry. And uh, so bands, even though you didn't make that much, I was on a tour with Spirit of the West in uh, 1991. And uh, so that was the first time I went there and, uh, and learned that all these bands would go there for a break, you know, because you get to North Bay, which people basically consider to be the armpit of the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was right next to this sort of, uh, I think it was like an insane asylum, which occasionally, like in the middle of a show, uh, the bouncer would let out this whistle and uh, all these guys would go running around chasing these guys out of the bar I'd be like oh no it's those guys again you know it's like the band just keep on playing it's the you know it's the Robbie Robertson thing you know, just keep on playing no matter what happens but yeah so strangely that place was a real a place of, of a reprieve of uh, 
of rest, you know, you get, because usually you're boxed up in the van with your band members, you're in the same hotel room, you're together all the time, especially in Canada touring. This place, you have the whole second floor. It's like, okay guys, I'll be down in room 107, like, you know, down 30 feet. <laughs> so yeah, that was a very memorable place. Um, where'd we play last night? That was a good city. I like that. <laughs> Sherwood Park. Sherwood Park. Okay. <laughs> well, you, didn't you like? Didn't uh, didn't you say though that Lone Justice led up for you too in Montreal? Yes. Was Montreal? Yeah. That was. That must have been pretty good. Oh, it was excellent. Yeah, we got on stage and we basically as soon as we started, people started throwing peanuts and cups of ice at us. And I remember seeing backups and I can remember swallowing and almost choking on peanuts when people threw them <laughs> at us. And that was the first song. And it, it just kept going for a half hour. And then we walked off stage. Oh <laughs> and it was, a, it was kind of like, um, it was over, it seemed overpacked. It was almost like a sardine can of people. Yes. It, was too, it was too much. And, and, and their fans base that it was arguably the worst show of the entire tour for us for a lot of different reasons but one of them was that everyone was waiting for you too and for some reason our set just started late and uh they would have none of it <laughs> I, that's one of the few shows i remember from the tour yeah. <laughs> what's the best album to have sex to red red meat Ah, uh, I can't remember the name of the album, but if I saw the album cover, I'd know to pick it out, and I'd know when I wanted to do it. Veden Fleece, and um, what is the first Van Morrison sort of big album with the sort of round uh, Astral Weeks, is it? Oh, I don't know. Astral Weeks? I don't know if that was... Those are good. Those are good ones. Um, Velvet Underground, the banana album. <laughs> hey. Yes. What's your favorite road trip album? ABBA Gold. Man, I would say maybe Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen because it's uh, road trips are actually, in my opinion, the best place to hear music because you never hear the lyrics as clearly as you do on the road because you're looking out the window or you're looking at the highway. And it just goes directly into you. You know, you just hear every line. And that album is so desolate. And if you put it on late at night when you're driving, especially if you're driving alone, there's nothing quite like it. I might say uh, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, but not because of the album. My least favorite song on the record is Sloop John B. And the lyric, this is the worst place I've ever, this is the worst trip I've ever been on. I would play that song over and over again. That would be my, <laughs> like my personal theme song, or I might share that song. Let's say the drummer go, What do you think? Oh, yeah, this is the worst trip I've ever been on. This is, and we play that song over and over again. <laughs> yeah. So I'd have to say Pet Sounds, but opposite reason for my love of the album. <laughs> well, all right, we're down to our last question, and it's a doozy. So, similar to that Twilight Zone episode, if you were the last person alive on Earth, what's the first thing you would do? Undress. I would take off all my clothes, because I'd be like, great. And then I would cry. I would just weep, and I would despair. Uh, I, would, I would have a good sob. A good naked sob. It's going to be kind of hard to top that one, <laughs> I, I would... Uh... I would actually uh, keep looking and see if there was someone else. Because I wouldn't believe that I'm the last one. So even I had to like walk around or, uh, you know, 
go on like the last computer that was around or drive around and just see there's got to be someone else. I can't be alone on this on this place. So I, I would look for someone else. I'd probably listen to music is probably what I do. Well, all right. Thank you so much for coming down to the Cups and Cakes booth. Thank you for Thank having us. Thank you. We appreciate it very much. And we uh, wish you all the best on your future endeavors. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, all right, you people out there in Radio Land. How about I send you on your way with a song, Rip It Off, from Gold Top. Cups and Cakes is produced by Jeff McCallum. The feature track was played with permission from Goldtop. Undercurrents from Atlantis Jazz Ensemble's album Oceanic Suite is the background music throughout the entire episode. Oceanic Suite is available through Ottawa's Marlowe Records. Find out more at marlowrecords.com. Inside the Artist Studio is the second podcast from Cups and Cakes. To hear the original and learn more, go to cupsandcakespod.com. That's cups, the letter N, cakespod.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>